Hey everybody, Dave here, and this is the 2021 Year in Review episode of Tales from the Backlog. 2021 has been a good year for video games, just like 2020 and 2019 and 2018 and 2017. Is there a trend that you're noticing here? But 2021 has been a great year for video games. And I originally thought maybe I was not going to do a kind of year in review game of the year type episode, but I recently came into a lot of unexpected free time and, well, this is how I handle things like that. Now I make podcasts. So (laughs) that was not a cry for help, I promise. But anyway, here is uh, my year of gaming in review. So what I'm going to do is first I'm going to give my top 10 games that I played in 2021 that were not released in 2021. And then I will go through the 2021 games that I played, of which there are, let me count, there were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, twelve games. Ha 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 ha. Okay. So, first things first. Tales from the Backlog is a relatively new show, which just got started about two months ago. Around the end of October was episode one. And in the past couple of months, I have been pleasantly surprised and very, well, actually, honestly, amazed at the number of people who are listening to me talk about video games, which kind of just started as a, like, a creative outlet to talk about the things that I love the most. Video games are my favorite type of entertainment media. I, you know, I enjoy watching movies and TV and I enjoy reading and stuff like that, but Nothing beats a good video game for me. So I wanted to talk about the games that I love, the games that I play. So far, it's been games that I've loved. Maybe (laughs) in the future, there'll be some episodes about games that I don't love. Uh, But it's been a a nice uh, thing to see, to see people listening to the show and some people wanting to talk to me about the games that I've covered on the show and people telling me that my uh, episodes have been um, the reason that they want to go buy a game or take it out of the backlog the way that I've done with several of these. So that has been very cool. I'm very much looking forward to what I have coming up on the show in 2022. Uh, But I just wanted to say that has been very cool. And also everybody who has uh, supported my other show, a top three podcast. I appreciate all of you. So, without any further ado, let's get into the top 10 games from other years that I played for the first time in 2021. The first game is a game that I, I, and I'll say, these are not in any particular order, I just kind of wrote them down in a list. So, the first game is actually the game from the most recent Tales from the Backlog episode, Silent Hill 2. And if you want to hear, you know, my kind of detailed thoughts about Silent Hill 2, go listen to that episode. I'm really proud of that conversation. But 
I played Silent Hill 2 for the first time in 2021. I loved it. It's one of the only straight-up horror games that I've ever played. Uh, this is not going to become a trend. I'm not going to start playing more horror games because of it, but I am glad that I played Silent Hill 2. So Silent Hill 2 is in the top 10, and once again, that was the most recent episode of Tales from the Backlog. So go listen to that. I have a wonderful guest. Their name is James. We had a great conversation about Silent Hill 2. So that is the first one. Coming up next, Darkest Dungeon. Darkest Dungeon is next on the list of games I played for the first time in 2021. And I have an episode planned for Darkest Dungeon in the future where you'll hear all of my kind of detailed thoughts again about it, but uh, my thoughts right now that I'll say right now is that Darkest Dungeon, I think, it has a top five, top three turn-based combat that I have ever played in a video game. Quick top three off the top of my head, turn-based combat. Uh, Divinity Original Sin 2, Darkest Dungeon, and either Persona 5 or Final Fantasy X. Those are my like contenders for the top three turn-based combat. That's why I love Darkest Dungeon so much, but it's not the only reason. I'll get into that in the episode, so be on the lookout for that in uh, probably in the late winter, early spring Darkest Dungeon episode. Next up, the third game in my top 10 that I played from other years Red Dead Redemption 2. Red Dead Redemption 2. This was a game that I was just kind of holding out on, uh, holding out for a sale on, and then it got put on PS Now uh, for a limited time, but I uh, scooped that up immediately as soon as it was put up there. And I remember them saying, like, you know, uh, this will only be on PS Now for three months or something like that. So I was like, oh, I need to, I need to hurry. I need to get through, I need to play Red Dead Redemption 2 before it gets removed off the service. So I played like 55 to 60 hours in about three weeks of Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> that game is a blast. It has an absolutely fantastic story. And uh, that is a game I would like to talk about on the show in the future. So if you're listening to this and you played Red Dead Redemption 2 and you want to talk about it, let me know. Uh, I would love to talk about that game on the show. You don't have to, it doesn't even have to be someone who loves the game either. Just if you played it and you have thoughts, um, if you played it recently enough to talk about it, let me know. I would love to talk about Red Dead 2. I think that game rules one of the best cast of characters and storylines in a game that I've played recently. Speaking of storylines... The next game, Spec Ops The Line. All I knew about this game, somehow I just straight up missed this, or it came out, you know, whenever the fuck it came out, um, for like the Xbox 360 or something like that, and I just thought, oh, military shooter? No, no thank you. Um, my kind of personal gaming preferences, I don't give a shit about military shooters. I actually dislike them. Uh, because I think they're military propaganda for the most time. And that was what I thought Spec Ops The Line was, and woohoo, I was wrong. 
this is the opposite of military propaganda. So uh, this one had a great storyline that I, I mean, I still think about it sometimes. I played it in one sitting, like six and a half hours in one sitting, like legit didn't take any breaks. Um, yeah. So I do that lazy Sunday thing on the show sometimes where I pick a game that I say you can complete in a Sunday afternoon. Well, Spec Ops The Line is over that kind of hour threshold for the Lazy Sunday series, but I did complete it in a Sunday. So that game rules. That's another one. Um, I would probably need to replay that before I can talk about it on the show, but if anyone out there has played that game and has thoughts about it, that's another one. Uh, I would be happy to talk about. Number five in the top 10 games I played in 2021 is Shadowrun Hong Kong. And if you're not familiar with Shadowrun, get familiar because it's coming to Switch um, and those games are fantastic. Shadowrun Returns, Shadowrun Dragonfall, and Shadowrun Hong Kong are CRPGs with kind of I don't want to say bare bones, but very simple role-playing in there, and then XCOM-esque turn-based combat. And in the Shadowrun universe, you have a kind of cyberpunk future mixed with traditional fantasy elements like dragons and orcs and stuff like that. And uh, it is just it is a fantastic setting. It's one of the coolest settings ever. And the gameplay is really, really good, especially the combat. It's fantastic. So Shadowrun Hong Kong. If you're going to play a Shadowrun game, I recommend you play Dragonfall first. But Hong Kong is like... It's not quite as good as Dragonfall, but it's still very, very good. I mean, Dragonfall is like just a an excellent, excellent game. They're coming to Switch sometime this year, I think this year being 2022. So if you're interested in Shadowrun, they were also given away free on the Epic Game Store uh, in 2020, I think. They go on sale a lot. Definitely recommend if you like CRPGs. The next game on the list of games I played for the first time in 2021 is the Demon's Souls remake on PS5. So I got my PS5 around May, I think I got it for my birthday, so that must have been May 2021, and the first game I downloaded for it was Demon's Souls, because um, if you've listened to me talk about games, you know that I love the Souls games, but I never played Demon's Souls because I never had a PS3. So I was so excited to play this, and it did not let me down. It's fantastic. It's a beautiful, beautiful game and playing it at 60 fps and seeing the inspirations for so many of the other things throughout the souls series was fantastic yeah and honestly i think if you think that dark souls bloodborne especially like dark souls 3 if you think those games are too hard i would recommend playing demon souls because i think it's easier like, I think the series has gotten harder as it's gone along. I think Demon's Souls is by far the easiest one in the series. Yeah, I think so. There's only like one or two fights in there that I think are really hard. So, yeah, Demon's Souls. Fantastic. 
Number seven on the top 10 played for the first time in 2021 list is Dishonored 2. Dishonored 2. I loved the original Dishonored game uh, when it came out for the 360, and I it, Dishonored 2 just came out during a time when I didn't have a... Uh, yeah, I was still... I think I was still playing the Wii U at that time. So, yeah, it's just... I mean, if, if you like Dishonored, if you like immersive sims, if you like stealth games, uh, it's hard to pick a better package of all of those things than Dishonored 2. The levels are really really good like some of the level design for a couple of them in particular if you've played the game uh, when I say Jindosh's mansion um, you know what I'm talking about it's just it's just incredible level design and as far as games for 2021 goes I haven't played Deathloop yet but from what I hear the level design's not as satisfying in Deathloop which is kind of disappointing for me but Dishonored 2 fantastic Number eight on that top 10 is Portal 2, which I played for the first time in 2021. Portal 2, what can I say about that that hasn't already been said? I think it's a masterpiece of a, a puzzle game. The way that they slowly introduce concepts and then start to blend them together, the way that the humor works in that game is just... I mean, I don't want to say perfect because I, I don't think there is a perfect game, except maybe Tetris, but um, Portal 2 is as close to perfect as I can think of. I can't really think of a flaw in Portal 2, except that some of the some of the levels are like kind of big and it's hard to find where you're supposed to go, but that's it, and that happens like once or twice. Yeah. Portal 2 is fantastic, and really fun co-op, too. Number 9 on the list is West of Loathing, which is a game that if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen me uh, kind of pump up this game a few times. Uh, West of Loathing is no hyperbole, one of the funniest games I've ever played. And if, when I say funny game, if you start to cringe, if you think, oh no, funny games like you mean like borderlands funny no this is like i don't it's so it's a it's an rpg and it's like playing through kind of a tabletop adventure with the world's funniest uh dm and just all of the ways that so it's it's it has this western setting but everything is very silly and I guess that that would be a word to describe it. Like, it's not trying to be edgy funny. It's silly funny, and it works so, so well. The game is really fun to play. Uh, the combat is, like, it's all right, but th the combat's not really the point. The point is that you're playing through this adventure, and it's, it's seriously, it's, it's like a laugh a minute. It's so clever and silly the way that it works. So I really recommend West of Loathing. You'll continue to see me pump it up. Um, on the uh, on the Twitter feed, at least, whenever I see that it goes on sale. West of Loathing is really good. And the last one, number 10 on the list, is The Legend of Zelda, A Link Between Worlds. And this year, I got a hold of a 3DS for the first time, and this was one of those games that I'd heard through the years is, like, really awesome, but 
I had never had a 3DS. And so this was one of the first ones that I wanted to try out. And it's totally worth it. Totally worth that wait. And this may sound blasphemous to some people, but I think this is the best 2D Zelda game. This is kind of a remake or a reimagining of A Link to the Past, and I think this is much better than A Link to the Past. Um, I have bounced off of A Link to the Past at least three times. I think I just always got lost and had no idea where I was supposed to go next, or no idea how to get to the place I was supposed to go next. A Link Between Worlds is a, a much less linear game. So if you find an obstacle, you can just go do another dungeon instead. You can go rent an item that will help you get into dungeons instead of like this prescribed, you go in this dungeon, you get this item, which then allows you to go in the next dungeon and get the next item, which then allows you to, you know. So I'm interested in revisiting A Link to the Past because I, I do want to see what it is that people say is so good about it. But I have played both of those games in the past couple years, and I think A Link to the World is way better. So, A Link Between Worlds, number 10 on my first, um, first time from other years, played in 2021. That was taken way out of order, but anyway... Time to get into the games I played in 2021. So I want to start with a game that I am in progress right now. So this is not a completed opinion. This is based on the first five-ish hours of the game, but I do want to mention it because I think it's really cool, and I think that you should check it out too. And it is Wildermyth. So Wildermyth from Worldwalker Games, is unlike anything I've ever played before. So I often see games that are trying to capture the spirit of, like, playing a tabletop RPG, but not many of them are able to actually get that same kind of unpredictable experience where you don't know how this is going to go, the GM really doesn't know what's going to happen. I mean, they have control over the scenario, but a good GM is not going to force you down a certain path if there's reason to, uh, you know, improvise or come up with other things. So, like, there are other games that are based on really good tabletop systems, like Divinity Original Sin and Disco Elysium are based on tabletop rule sets. But if you replay Divinity Original Sin and if you replay Disco Elysium, you're going to see basically the same game. In Wildermyth, we have procedural generation, which is the ace card for Wildermyth. So the game has scenarios where you start in the same place, but as the game goes, it will generate decisions to make, like, you know, do you open this treasure chest? Do you leave it alone? Um, do you talk to this character? Do you leave them alone? Do you go here and explore, or do you go here and explore? And these decisions, to the best of my knowledge, are procedurally generated, and the characters you meet maybe procedurally generated, the loot that you get, stuff like that. So you will quickly diverge from where other players are. Like if me and then you listening, if you start the same scenario, eventually we're going to get to a point where we're still roughly playing the same, you know, bare bones plot, 
But the things that are happening in the meantime, the characters that we meet, are going to be different, as far as I can tell. So, what the game does is it's split into two main modes. In the first one, you kind of, you're on like a board game setup. Like, it, it looks like a kind of like settlement builder board game. And so you choose where to explore, where to uh, fortify, where to defend from invasion. Uh, you choose to send your characters off to different places to complete jobs and stuff like that. I'm not a huge fan of that stuff. Like, I don't... It, it's, I'm not saying that it's bad in Wildermyth. I'm saying, like, I don't like those kind of games. So what's cool is you can turn down the difficulty for that mode... And what I want to do is focus on kind of stories and combat. So in Wildermyth, the combat is also on a grid with a cover system. Not, I mean, I'm going to keep invoking XCOM or like Shadowrun that I talked about before. Um, and the combat is really, really creative. Like, of course, you have your sword characters, you have your your ranger type characters, you have your wizards, but they all have abilities that are really creative that I that use the environment in ways that I don't see a lot of games do. For example, the wizard, the way wizards work is they can kind of like possess or enchant objects in the environment. Like, you know, if there's a if there's a wooden crate in a room the wizard can enchant the wooden crate and they can make it explode. And that's how the wizard fights. Uh, they do these, you can enchant a candle to shoot fire out, for example. All kinds of creative things like this. So, um, and like your other character classes have pretty creative things that they can do too. So, like I said, this is in progress, but I'm absolutely going to continue to play this. Um, it's not going to be in consideration for like what I'm going to do is my top three games of the year. You know, I'm a top three guy. But I do think that Wildermyth is very cool. I'm going to continue playing it. I think you should too. So let's get into the the games that I did complete in 2021. And these are in alphabetical order. And as we go, I'm going to give my quick thoughts and Eventually, I'm going to narrow these down to a top three games of 2021. I'm not going to pick a best one uh, because I'm having trouble separating recency bias from a few of these, but top three is good. We're going to start with Before Your Eyes, alphabetical order. So, I have to applaud Before Your Eyes, which is from Goodbye World Games. I have to applaud Before Your Eyes for doing something that's truly special. Lots of games focus on story, and they opt for a first-person perspective due to the like inherent connection that that creates between the player and the character in the game. That's 
one of the benefits of doing first person. Before Your Eyes takes that one step for further, forging an actual physical connection between you and the character. So your character is reliving their entire life before moving on to the afterlife. So your character's dead, and you're in this kind of like between. Before moving on to the afterlife, you must relive your entire life. And so what the game does, if you haven't heard of Before Your Eyes, is it uses your PC's webcam to track your eye movements, and when you blink in real life, your character's story will jump forward. So, automatically, this should, like if you think about this for a few seconds, this sets up these brilliant scenarios where you're in these scenes in your character's life and you are struggling not to blink so that you can catch just a few more seconds of what's going on in the scene. And that absolutely happened to me several times. Like, you really want to see what's happening, but you need to blink more than you have ever needed to blink in your entire life. And once you do, that scene is gone forever. So, you should be able to guess where this is headed. I'm not going to spoil uh, what's happening in the actual story. This is something you absolutely should experience. But if you value creative ways to tell stories, or if you just value unique game mechanics, you have to play before your eyes. You have to. Uh, it's something that you, you owe it to yourself. This is also a game that I would recommend if you have a partner or a parent, maybe not a kid. Uh, this game's uh, a little... Yeah, I, I wouldn't show this to a kid. <laughs> um, but if you have someone in your life who you think would enjoy a unique experience, like a, a unique media experience, this is a very simple thing because there's there's almost no gameplay except for blinking and taking in the story. So if you have someone who normally doesn't play games but you think they would value a unique experience, this is something to recommend to them as well. It's not very expensive. I think full price, it's like 10 or $15. And it's not a long game. It took me three hours to complete. But uh, if you think about, like, did this experience have an impact on me more than watching a movie? Yes, 100%. And that's how I think about like price for short games. Um, I really enjoyed Dune, which was also about three hours long, but uh, I'm not going to take Dune with me the rest of my life. Uh, I will remember before your eyes for a long time. So, I mean, I think that speaks for itself. One thing to note about before your eyes is that if you're going to play it, make sure you're in a, a well-lit area so that your webcam will function um, perfectly. I had some webcam problems that really dampened the impact that the story could have had. Like I would pass the calibration every single time, but then when the game started, it would stop working. So I do want people to be aware of that. If you're going to play this, make sure you're in a, a really well-lit area. But I mean, yeah, I'm just... 
getting kind of lost in thought, thinking back to um, what happened in the game. So before your eyes, um, very, very good experience. Not going to be in my top three because of that webcam problem. I mean, I don't know. If it if I didn't have that webcam problem, uh, it, it would have been hard to top. So I still recommend you try it. Just make sure you're in a very well-lit area. Make sure you get that webcam to work. Next on the list, Death's Door. So, first things first, I have a full episode of Death's Door coming that I'm uh, planning to record here in a couple of weeks, so I'm not going to get super deep into Death's Door. Um, Death's Door made by Acid Nerve. What I'll say right now, for anyone who's listening to all the Game of the Year podcasts, watching the Game of the Year videos, and you keep seeing Death's Door and you think, hey, I want to try that, um, I just want to caution people to have your expectations in the right place. Because what I learned about what I learned about the games kind of sphere, the people talking about games, is that people don't know how to describe difficult games without saying the words Dark Souls. So I heard over and over again, Death's Door, it's like Dark Souls, but isometric. Death's Door, it's like 2D Zelda meets Dark Souls. And as somebody who really loves Dark Souls and really values how Dark Souls deals with difficulty, how it creates difficulty, uh, what difficulty means in Dark Souls, um, Death's Door is not like that at all. Death's Door is just a difficult 2D Zelda-esque game with dungeons and puzzles and hook shots and one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard but it is not a Souls-like game, so keep that in your mind if that's what you're expecting. So, it took me a while to get used to the fact that people don't know how to describe difficulty without invoking Dark Souls, but once I did, I enjoyed Death's Door. It's a good game. It's not in my top three. Um, it was just a process to shake like the expectations that I had coming in versus what the game actually is. So, Death's Door, pretty good game. Next up on the list, Death's Gambit. So, Death's Gambit by White Rabbit, originally released in 2018, but by the time I heard about Death's Gambit, I saw that they were working on a big expansion, 
And that expansion is subtitled Afterlife, and that expansion dropped in 2021. So I'm counting this as a new game because it basically is a new game with what this expansion added to it. Now, I talked about Death's Gambit with my wonderful guest Moonborn in episode 8. So if you want to listen to us talk about, like, in detail why this game is awesome, go listen to that. But Death's Gambit, unlike Death's Door, Death's Gambit is a Souls-like game, is following the way that Souls-like creates difficulty, and is fantastic. It merges Souls-like with Metroidvania better than any other game that I've played that is also going for those two things. Like, Hollow Knight gets compared to Dark Souls, and in my upcoming episode about Hollow Knight, I say the words Dark Souls 400 times, so uh, drink every time you hear that when you listen to that episode. But um, Hollow Knight's combat is not very Dark Soulsy. Death's Gambit is. And I have a I have a lot of trouble with 2D Souls likes. Thinking about some I played in the past, like Salt and Sanctuary and Vigil. And yeah, those are the two that are coming to my mind right now. Um, I have a lot of trouble with that loss of a dimension, basically. It makes the combat a lot less forgiving, and I get very frustrated. And I run into these situations where I get hit by attacks, and like especially against big bosses, losing that dimension means that I get hit more often and I don't know how I'm supposed to escape it. Death's Gambit doesn't have that problem, though, because Death's Gambit gives you, like, at least four defensive verbs. Um, you can dodge, you can jump, you can block, and you can parry. And there might be another one. I think those four, though. There's a lot of ways that you can avoid damage in Death's Gambit. And there are also several kind of like choose-your-own-difficulty mechanics that we discuss uh, in Episode 8. So, this really hits, like, the best of 2D Souls-esque combat, in my opinion. Absolutely gorgeous game. Great soundtrack. The Metroidvania stuff is good enough, I think. I think it's pretty good. Death's Gambit is in my top three games of 2021. Next up is Hitman 3. So Hitman 3 by IO Interactive. To me, Hitman 3 feels at the same time like the end of the Hitman trilogy and a kind of oh, new beginning for IOI. So the Agent 47 trilogy has been slowly transitioning from 
almost no focus on characters and story and all focusing on like clockwork level design slowly transitioning from that into more diverse types of levels that are not all these clockwork puzzles and much more focus on story so to me hitman 3 is good it's very good it's a hitman game but it's not it's not quite what i want from hitman if they just kept making levels for hitman 2 forever i would be happy with that and like the story that they focus on in hitman 3 is okay um, because I love Agent 47, and it's it's more focusing on what happens to Agent 47. So the story is fine, but you do get more levels that are like, they're less about these amazingly designed levels, and they're more like story missions, you know, like what what I would say. Okay, so just to say this simply... I think Hitman 3 is practice for IOI's 007 game that they're making. Like, kind of like a test run. Kill two birds with one stone. We finish the story of Agent 47, and we start to make more levels that are more conducive to a 007 story. So, uh, that's important for 007 because that series has always been known for these larger-than-life characters and these these comically exaggerated villains and these kind of self-contained storylines. So there are some levels in Hitman 3 that feel like Bond levels more than Hitman levels. And I'm not going to I'm not going to say exactly what it is cuz I I do think you should play Hitman 3 if you've played the previous two games cuz it's still really good. And what's beautiful about it just like the other ones is if you want to play the Hitman 1 levels and the Hitman 2 levels you can import them into this beautiful ray tracing enabled Hitman 3 engine. So you get those sweet, sweet sunbeams reflected off of 47's dome. So you will be hearing uh, my guest from, I think it was episode three, talking about Hitman 1. We recorded an episode about Hitman 2. We go in extreme detail about that game and why we love it. That episode will be coming up in the winter, and then later on you will hear us kind of conclude our own personal Hitman trilogy with Hitman 3. So, Hitman 3, very good game. Not exactly what I was hoping for, still good. By no means is Hitman 3 a bad game. If you like the other two Hitmans, you should still play it. Next up, Metroid Dread. I'll be honest with you, my expectations for Metroid Dread were pretty low. In the months leading up to the release, I played Super Metroid, Metroid Zero Mission, and Metroid Fusion, and I came to the conclusion 
that I like different things about Metroid than other people do. What I mean by that is people seem to love Super Metroid for the way you have no direction and how you are just free to explore in this like super atmosphere world. And Super Metroid is by far my least favorite of the Metroid games that I've played. So, for me, what I value, because this is, these are Metroidvanias, what I value is how good does it feel to move and actually play the game. It's not all I value, of course. The, the Metroidvania stuff has to be good. You'll hear me talk about Metroidvania design when we talk about Hollow Knight and some others in the future, including an episode about Metroid Dread with a very special guest that I'm very excited to record with. But Metroidvanias involve lots of backtracking. That's like, you know, one of the pillars of Metroidvania design is you get a new upgrade, you backtrack through the map, and you find all these new places you can go, all these new treats you can find. And I think Super Metroid feels awful to play. It's slow, it's clunky, you can only shoot in those, you know, limited directions. I hate playing Super Metroid. That's not saying Super Metroid's a bad game, I just don't like playing it. I much prefer the way that Zero Mission feels, and I think Metroid Fusion is a lot more fun to play than Super Metroid. So, that's my Metroid rant. You'll hear it again when I talk, <laughs> when I talk with my guest about Dread. But in Dread, it was a huge relief, because Dread feels amazing to play. It's smooth, it's fast, it's even stylish which is not something you can say about old Metroid games. And if you don't think Metroid games should be stylish, well, be disappointed in the way Dread is, I guess. So, I really love a lot about Dread. I love how it feels to play and run through the levels. I like how the combat feels. I like some of the boss fights, which is better than other Metroid games where I like almost none of the boss fights. But... Metroid Dread decides to shake it up by interrupting that sweet, beautiful movement and uh, kind of free-form exploration with the Emmy Zones, which is not a spoiler because this is all the that Nintendo marketed. Uh, they basically marketed one boss fight and Emmys, and I think the Emmys suck. I think they're horrible. I'm going to explain this in my full episode, so I'll save my thoughts, but I love, like I said, I love moving through the levels, exploring, uh, kind of flying around, the stylish stuff, and the Emmy Zones made me <clears throat> dread going in there for all the wrong reasons. So be on the lookout for my full episode about dread where I'll explain that. Metroid Dread is a good game. But, I don't know, prob maybe in my top three Metroid games, I like it more than Super Metroid. We'll say that. Moving on. Operation Tango.
So, it's almost become a meme at this point to say that a game makes you feel like X character. Spider-Man games make you feel like Spider-Man. Arkham Asylum made you feel like Batman. Newt's Day Out for the Nintendo DS made you feel like Newt Gingrich. Okay, one of those is just me trying to manifest my dream game, but the point is that Clever Plays Operation Tango actually makes you and your co-op partner, this is a mandatory co-op game, actually makes you and your co-op partner feel like a badass spy and handler in the earpiece duo. The thing that Operation Tango does really well is that it varies up your interfaces all the time. So like you'll solve a little micro puzzle for about one or two minutes and then you move on to the next challenge. And so the spy and the handler are always looking at different information and you always need the information that the other person has. Think like keep talking and nobody explodes, but much more variety. So, I played this for a few hours, I played a few missions, it got really difficult, and uh, the other thing this game has working against it is that I hate trying to coordinate times to play multiplayer games with people, so I often just don't try. But it was a lot of fun. This was given away for free on PlayStation Plus if you are like me and you just redeem everything that seems like it might be cool. If you did that and it's just been sitting in the backlog, Give it a try. If you have a friend to play with, give it a try. I think you'll like it. Operation Tango. Next up, Returnal. first thing that people are going to ask when you start talking about Housemarque's Returnal is probably, oh, uh, that sounds cool, too bad I can't find a PS5. But after that, they will inevitably also say, I heard that game's really hard. And I'm here to tell you that, yes, Returnal is really fucking hard. I mean, I think every bullet hell game is really hard, but... Unlike Enter the Gungeon, which I think is legitimately impossible, I actually beat Returnal, I got the secret ending, and I can attribute this to two things that make it not, like, ball-crushingly, punishingly hard. Number one, having a third dimension, because this is not a top-down bullet hell game, this is a 3D bullet hell game. Having that third dimension adds a lot of safe space on the screen that those 2D top-down games don't have. Bullet Hell is all about not panicking, finding a safe space on the screen. Having a third dimension gives you more options. And of course the developers plan for that too by adding, you know, literal environment full of things, but there is always a safe space if you're moving around. But 
uh, the thing that made Returnal possible for me to beat, even though I acknowledge that it is difficult, is that it's a fucking blast to play. It makes no apologies about being a video game-ass video game. The main character, named Celine, moves super fast, she jumps super high, and she dashes super far. This is not a game that's going for a realistic feel. This isn't <laughs> Red Dead Redemption 2 bullet hell. This is an arcade-ass game. The guns are really creative and fun, like my personal MVP, the Electro-Pylon Driver. The bosses have this insane spectacle. And very creative, very cool bullet hell patterns. And like, this is weird. This is going to be weird for me to say. This is maybe not what you're expecting, but the bosses are not that hard, in my opinion. It took me a long time to beat the first boss because I was still getting a hold of how the game works. But after that, I don't think I needed more than two tries to beat any of the bosses. Now, I died a ton in some of the levels. I think the levels are harder. But the bosses are really memorable. They're really fun. Um, and uh, I, don't, I can't say anything profound about Returnal right now. Maybe because I don't have anything profound to say about the story right now. There's going to be a full episode about Returnal coming up on the show in the uh, winter or early spring, for sure. But for right now, I will say I have 29 and a half theories about what the fuck is happening in the story of Returnal. So, this is one of those games that I played super recently. Like, I'm re on the day I'm recording this, I literally beat the game earlier this week. So, eh, fuck it. Recency bias be damned. This is in my top three of 2021. It's deserving. This game fucking rules. Returnal's good. Don't fret about the difficulty. If this game were as impossible as people claim it is, it wouldn't be on so many Game of the Year lists. Next. Super Mario 3D World plus Bowser's Fury. Nintendo gets a lot of shit for their propensity to package up old games, change very little, maybe change nothing, and then sell them again for full price uh, as a replacement for having a proper virtual console on the Switch. So when Super Mario 3D World was ported to the Switch, along with some tacked-on bullshit called Bowser's Fury, not Bowser's Furry, I admittedly was like, okay, fuck that. 
I think I played 3D World on the Wii U. It's a very good game, but I wasn't going to pay $60 for it. But luckily, a family member let me borrow their uh, a couple of their Switch games, and this was one of them. So I was like, oh, okay, free Mario game. Sure, I'll play that. I liked Super Mario Odyssey. Why not? So as I expected, 3D World is very good. Uh, actually, in playing it this time, when I, I don't, this is going to sound super fucking pretentious, so I'm sorry, but like, <laughs> in my current mode where I'm a little bit more mindful about the games I play, and as I'm playing, I, I just, I think a little bit more about them as, you know, the way that they're made and stuff like that. Now that that's over. <laughs> with this kind of new way that I think about games, um, I realized that I really love 3D World more than Odyssey. I have no desire to ever play Odyssey again. Even though there are 9,000 things to collect in Odyssey, I'm done with that game. It was fun, but I don't know. I just don't have the urge to keep playing it. I'll say, when I was playing Odyssey, I never once for one second went back to an old level and looked for moons. I just didn't. But in 3D World, I went back to levels and looked for stars. And that was cool. 3D World, very good. But the real surprise was that I think Bowser's Fury is the best 3D Mario game. Because I think it collects the best parts of everything that everyone loves about Mario, especially 3D Mario. So you get this kind of open, it's not kind of, it is an open world. You get this little open world. You get the fun movement that people like about 3D Mario. You have this, you know, Loch Ness monster thing to ride around in the ocean on, and that's pretty fun. You get Cat Mario, which is a great power up. Um, you're able to go through the game and collect all of your, you know, Tanuki suits and your uh oh fire flowers and all those things and you're able to bank them when you get them so you will usually have lots and lots of these power ups and so it's it ends up not being a very difficult game because if you get hit by something you just pop another power up out of your bank and you can just keep going now if you play mario games for a challenge maybe this one's not going to be for you uh that's not me though and you, what you get in Bowser's Fury is these really tightly designed small worlds that have, I think, five of these, uh, uh, what are they called, cat somethings, cat shines in them. And it reminded me a lot of Super Mario 64. And anyone who played Super Mario 64, I think, will instantly recognize this kind of open world with smaller worlds inside of it, only now there's no loading screens to separate them. And each of these open worlds is a blast to go through two or three times, try to find the cat shines, and then you're done. And I 100%ed Bowser's Fury, because it's just a ton of fun to go through these levels, and the knowledge that each level only had five of these things, I think it's five, maybe it's six, but the knowledge that there's not 900 moons to get made it suddenly a very achievable and therefore more fun thing to go after and i'm not someone who goes for 100 percent in games ever 
but I 100%ed Bowser's Fury. Now, that took like 8 hours to get 100%. It's not like this was, you know, 100%ing Returnal or something like that. The other thing about Bowser's Fury, which some people don't like, but I actually really enjoyed this, is that every 5 to 6 minutes, a big fucking kaiju Bowser shows up, and you either have to run away and just kind of wait out the timer, or uh, you use an item to become a giant kaiju cat Mario and fight Bowser. And this is like a real boss fight. It's not like a, you know, Super Mario 64 grab Bowser by the tail three times. It's not like that. This is a boss fight with health bars, and Bowser has attacks that you can learn and wind-ups so you can, like, avoid his attacks. <laughs> it's just a blast. I mean, it may not sound... I don't know, it may sound rough the way I'm describing it, but, like, also, like, realize that while you're fighting Bowser, you are a legit giant cat. And if you like 3D Mario games, I don't know how that would not appeal to you. Because to me, that's what it's all about. All these creative things they're doing. So, Bowser's Fury and Mario 3D World, of course. That's in my top three of 2021. We've got two more games left. Next up is Unpacking. I've been thinking about unpacking and talking about it is that if I was moving and my boxes got mixed up with somebody else's and we would each kind of open up the boxes from the other person and we would pull out all their stuff and you can kind of get to know somebody by looking at their stuff and I've often thought it was interesting because uh, I moved across the ocean um, coming up on six, seven years ago now. And I had to basically put everything I cared about and wanted to take with me into two suitcases. And so I was thinking about what do those choices say about me and what's going on with my life? And that is what unpacking is about. So unpacking is by a studio called Witchbeam. And in the game... Um, in a reductive sense, you're unpacking boxes and putting their stuff away when they move into a new home. But what you're actually doing is you're seeing the story of this character's life play out through the vehicle of the stuff that they take with them. And I just think that that is a very cool way to tell a character's story because your stuff, the stuff that you keep and especially the stuff that you choose to take with you when you move does tell your story a little bit. So 
when you're playing the game and you start to see these same obviously sentimental possessions keep coming out of the boxes, move after move, as your character gets older and older, uh, you start to realize that, like, oh, like, this is really important to this character. And then your other job is to find a place for all of the things. So, like, you know, this uh, this doll that the character keeps taking with them every single move until they're clear, they're very clearly like an adult, you know that this doll means a lot to them. And so you need to decide where to put it. You're not going to just throw it in the fucking closet. You're going to put it somewhere where sentimental possessions go. And yeah, I, I just think it's a very cool way to tell a story. I was hoping for a few more chapters, but this is a... Um, from what I can tell, a small dev team. It's it's a indie-ass indie game, which just means that they probably had to narrow down their scope into what they can do, because if you play this game, you'll see the amount of detail, the amount of care that went into the stuff that they did create. It's and I was hoping for more, but it's really hard to fault them for the scope that the game does have. Oh, and uh, if for some reason you're listening to this game and you're under about, well, let's say under about 25 years old, you're going to come across this uh, this weird cube-shaped thing, and the game is not going to let you put it in the kitchen. That thing's a Nintendo GameCube. That shit goes in the living room where you can play Super Smash Bros. Melee. Last game on the list. This is another indie game and it's called Webbed. glad I get to talk about it on the 2021 wrap-up episode because this is one of those games where kind of a flaw in my show format shows up where I really liked this game I don't know anyone else who's played it so you know my show and my kind of episodes that go deep dive on games they rely on a guest you know, there might be a game that I really want to talk about, but if I can't find someone else who's played that game or someone else who wants to talk about it or someone else who's played it recently enough to talk, sometimes it's tough. And this was one of those games that I wanted to talk about. Don't know anyone else who's played this game. So it didn't turn into an episode of the show because I do have enough games that people like I, I I am not at a shortage of games that I can find guests for and so I'm happy for all of those I'm happy to talk about all of those games it's just an unfortunate thing that sometimes indie games small indie games I don't, I'm not talking about like Hades indie games 
I mean, games like webbed and unpacking and before your eyes, sometimes it's just hard to find someone to talk about. So this is the chance to talk about webbed. And honestly, I would not have heard about this game either, but uh, there is a very wonderful Slack channel that I'm a part of for the uh, duckfeed.tv podcast network. And people on there were talking about this little indie game where you are a spider and swinging around. And had it not been for that um, chat, I probably would have missed this game because sometimes this happens. Uh, You miss out on cool little indie games because your Twitter feed is 80% console warriors arguing with each other and 10% people fucking posting thirsty fan art for Final Fantasy 7 and <laughs> the rest of it is people talking about Horizon Forbidden West because you liked one tweet six months ago but I heard about webbed and I'm going to start talking about the game now by Sbug Games uh, webbed is a little indie game where you play as a spider it's like a 2D platformer puzzle game um, and you have a couple of web shooting mechanics. One of them is not unlike Spider-Man, where you shoot a web and you can swing across the screen. But the other one that's kind of more involved is you can use your webs to tie two things together. And this you can use this to make bridges for yourself. But what this actually is used for is for little physics puzzles, where there's an elevator going up and you can't carry something yourself so you need to tie it to the elevator using your webs and take it up to where it needs to go and it just ended up being a really satisfying kind of lazy sunday type game i think i played it in two sessions it's about three hours long and uh i don't know it's got a cool little story you play as a spider trying to save your boyfriend from a uh an evil bird and yeah, not very expensive. Just a just a fun indie game. I hope that if you're interested in um you know, supporting indie developers and playing a little game where you you go around as a cute spider and you meet the other insects of the uh kind of environment there and doing these interesting little web puzzles and skateboarding. Yeah, you heard that right. That was not a uh I didn't misspeak there. Yeah, it's just a cool little game. Little spider swinging around. So, I mean, isn't that what we're looking for? Cool little experiences? So, those are the games from 2021 that I played. To reiterate, my top three games for 2021 were Death's Gambit Afterlife, Returnal, and Super Mario 3D World plus Bowser's Fury. Emphasis on Bowser's Fury, although 3D World is also excellent. I also made a tier list of all of the games I played in 2021, which is about 80 games. So I'll be posting that tier list. (laughs) Full disclosure, (laughs) full disclosure, my original idea was to do a podcast where I talk through all of those games 
and go through the tier list like I do, uh, like I did before, and uh, like I have planned for a couple of kind of bonus episodes in the near future. But I got about 25 games into that, and I realized that that was a horrible fucking decision. So I uh, kind of oh <laughs> reexamined how I want to do my end of year wrap up episode and just came up with this format that you just listened to. But that tier list uh, will be posted on the social media pages, which uh, are in the episode description. Go check that out. Lots of good games. Only, if I'm remembering correctly, only a couple that I thought were really bad. I like video games. I like most of the games I play. I hope you do too. If you're listening to this and you play a lot of games, I hope games make you happy. There are too many people that seem to hate everything they play, but they keep playing games. And I don't know if it's whether people just like to complain more than they like to talk sugar about stuff, or, uh, yeah, I don't know. I like video games. I like almost everything I play. I'm pretty choosy about the stuff I play because I know what I don't like, but the things that I do choose to play, I like almost all of them. You'll see that if you look at my tier list. So, yeah, that's 2021. Again, top three, Death's Gambit Afterlife, Returnal, and Bowser's Fury, plus Mario 3D World. So, check out the social media pages, the tier list for the things I played in 2021. I will keep that, you know, that big old Twitter thread I've been keeping over at my personal Twitter account at Real Dave Jackson. I'm going to be migrating that over to the Tales from the Backlog Twitter account for 2022, where I'll keep a running list of the games that I'm playing and what I think, and be on the lookout for the games coming up in January of 2022. We have, I can announce these now, Full disclosure, I record my normal episodes two, sometimes three months ahead of when they actually air. I'm recording this one much, much closer to release date. So I can tell you what's coming up in January. We have January 3rd, Hollow Knight with Jim Rodeman. January 10th, Florence, which is a wonderful little game featuring... Heather Siddiqui, and Nick Greenberg. January 17th, Disco Elysium, with Rick Firestone of the Great Pixel Project Radio Podcast. January 24th, The Messenger, with Alfredo, the Duke of Education, from the Great Dukes of Gaming Podcast. And January 31st, Scott Danielson and I continue our Hitman trilogy with Hitman 2. Enjoy those episodes, everybody. This is, in my opinion, a great month for the podcast. Great conversations about just some absolutely killer games. So I hope you enjoy them. That's going to be all for this episode. I guess... In summary for 2021, this has been very cool getting this podcast off the ground. I want to say thank you to everybody who has guested on my show so far, everybody who has recorded an episode with me uh, but is waiting for the episode to release because I 
record episodes months in advance because I'm a relentless planning sicko. And special thank you to some podcasters and podcasts who have been extremely welcoming to me as I kind of enter the games podcast uh, sphere. So real quick shout outs to uh, Rick and Ben from Pixel Project Radio, Brian and Ryan from Listoff, Jared, Kai, and Ben from the Play Along podcast, Keith from the Main Quest, and of course, last but not least, Eric and Tom from the Side Questing podcast. I love all of you. Thank you so much for making me feel welcome. And everybody who's been listening through 2021, I love you too. I said that with a very creepy smile on my face. I hope you heard it in my voice. Thank you, everybody. And yes, those January episodes are going to be killer, and I'm very excited about where 2022 is going to take Tales from the Backlog. So again, thank you all for listening. I will see you in 2022. Bye.